Before France was France, it was a loose collection of Dark Age kingdoms ruled over by the Merovingians. But the beginning of the medieval era saw the arrival of a Frankish nobleman who would forge a nation. Charles Martel, the Hammer, was a fearless warrior who drove his enemies out of France and founded the first Christian kingdom since the fall of the Roman Empire. One that would last to the present day. We're back for another episode of Blind History. We're in season six and we're talking about Charles Martel. Now, this sounds like someone who you'd expect to like meet on the streets of Paris in 2022. Hello, my name is Charles Martel. But um, <laughs> his real name wasn't Charles Martel. It was much more complicated. Obviously, these things always are. But we've become aware of him as Charles Martel because that was a nickname that was given to him. Martel coming from Martel, which comes from a mallet or a hammer. He was the hammer of the Christians against the Muslims in the 700s AD. And he was an incredible progenitor to the Carolinian dynasty. That's Charlemagne's dynasty. In fact, he was Charlemagne's grandfather, as I understand it. And we'll be focusing on him today in this episode of Blind History. My co-host, as always, is Anthony Meterer. And we're very excited to talk to you about somebody who comes from that period of history where I suppose you could say he started the medieval era. Yeah, so maybe quite a few people don't know who Charles Martel is, except that a lot of right-wing groups, but maybe we can chat a little bit about that later. But he's fundamental to the what transpired from Charles Martel's dad through to him and onto Charlemagne. It's incredible what happened. And Europe, it set the stage for Europe as you go, you know, into the medieval times and even into today. So he really did play a fundamental role. There's a lot of debate around it, how important um, the one particular battle was in the context of uh, religion on the European continent. But overall, mm. incredible lineage. Yeah, I mean, this is a period of time we call the Dark Ages, and it was coming to an end. Dark Ages is a name given to that period of time by the Christians who felt that they'd fallen out of favor. You know, the, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire had happened. Islam was on the rise. Muhammad had been born maybe a hundred odd years before Charles Martel took on the Muslims in Andalusia. And really, the two most important parts of this are, number one, that the medieval era is usually dated from about the time of Charles Martel. And the second one is that feudalism is more or less believed to have started to take place as the main system of government in that part of Europe. Europe was not a great place to be in, especially if you were a peasant. I mean, it <laughs> it continued to be a horrible place to be in for at least a thousand years after this. But Charles Martel was not really the king. Many people, when they read about him or they see his story, they assume he was the king. He's often depicted in French sculpture and paintings and you know medieval tapestries and manuscripts as being this crowned monarch. But he was actually the mayor of the palace. Now, it's complicated to think about the Merovingians, who were the, the original Frankish rulers of that part of the world. The Merovingians were sort of a a very hazy, shadowy genealogy of kings pre-Charles Martel, who seemed to have a whole lot less power than the people who were in charge of administration. Those were the people in the palace. And Charles Martel's father was the mayor of the palace, and he took over from him. But it wasn't an easy takeover. We'll get to that in a second. Either way, 
that part of the world, it, it's very complicated to go into exactly how it was divided up. There was Neustria and there was a, a palace in, what was the place called where he was from? Austrasia. Austrasia, yeah. So, so like Austria, Austria emanated a little bit from that. Austrasia was on the eastern side and actually included quite a bit of modern day southern Germany. Correct. And then we had Neustrasia, which is Neust- Neustria. So it's, Neustria, it's like a, it's kind of where Normandy and yeah. Belgium and that kind of area was. And then you had Burgundy, and below it you had Aquitaine, which was very it was on the border, which they called Andalusia, and that's where the Moors or the Muslims had come in. Aquitaine was at that stage under great threat from the Muslims, who had pretty much taken over the entire Spanish Iberian. Portuguese peninsula. And um, it was all called the Umayyad Caliphate at that point. They were definitely different. They're never looking at acquisition. They were looking, not looking at taking over and dominating. Once they actually took over, there was a whole lot of different fragmented tribes and they took mm-hmm. over that whole region. And it was very inclusive where you had Christians, Muslims, you had Jewish people, you had the whole lot in there. And they, they, it, was, it wasn't a strict society. As such. Yeah. And they encouraged, definitely in the first 70, 80 years, they encouraged the arts and cultural upliftment. Oh, yeah. There was a lot that they did in that area. And I think, yes, we'll get to it, but their foray into Aquitaine and those type of areas and later on to Portier was actually more of a, a hit and run exercise where they saw they could get some gold rather than saying we want to acquire the continent as such. Yeah, I'm very glad you brought that up because. It's almost a juxtaposition of the way that the Western world views the Muslim world in the current era. You know, at that stage, the Muslim world was far more educated. They had actually saved and archived much of the the classical knowledge and wisdom that we now should be very grateful to Andalusia for. You know, if those Muslims in Spain hadn't saved so much of the the great knowledge of, of places like Babylon and of Alexandria and of the ancient world, we probably wouldn't know much about it today. Europe was the backward place at that point, and Europe was really strict. And you know, being a Christian was a was a heavy and dark and burdensome thing at that point. But from their point of view, the Muslims were the infidels, right? So I said the juxtaposition: if you can try to swap them around, if you're Christian in 2022, for the attitudes that Christians perhaps had. For, you know, in those days, Muslims would have thought of Christians the way that we think of, of Muslims and vice versa. And again, the interesting thing about this was that these people in Northern and Western Europe at this point were really a rough bunch. There wasn't a whole lot of learning going on. The church was very powerful mm-hmm. and it was basically, you know, you were under the auspices of either the church or the sword. There was just no in between. There were no free people. On the eastern side, they were more worried about, especially the Montel family, Charles and his dad, were more worried about the pagans. So those who were worshipping, whatever they were worshipping without a god. So they were less concerned about the Muslims, and they spent a lot of time on the eastern side against, I suppose, uh, what we would call Saxons. Yeah, yeah, right. And some very rough Gothic tribes, which the Romans had battled just a couple of hundred years earlier. So he was born into the family of the administrator of the palace, but his stepmother, as soon as Charles Martel's father died, his stepmother stepped in and kind of 
pushed him aside. Her name was Plectrude, which is just another great name from history. And she actually installed her son, Theobald, into the position of, you know, boss of the realm, effectively, administrator of the palace, and just completely sideswept poor old Charles Martel, put him in prison, actually. And he stayed in prison for a long time. Yeah, but when we say poor old Charles, he was extremely ambitious. Uh, he knew exactly what he wanted. And he wanted to take over his father's realm. And so he, he was thrown in prison, but he escaped uh, quite dramatically. And then he just straight away went to war and took over Australia at the time. Mm-hmm. And then his, then his stepmom packed herself. And then she thought, shit, now I'm, I've backed the wrong horse. So... I think that's how that transpired. Yeah, I mean, it all sort of broke down into a civil war. And at that point, I suppose what became very apparent was that Charles was a very talented military warrior. He was a good fighter himself. He was brave. He could command troops well. He thought differently about the battle. He started to encourage the adoption of heavy cavalry into the army, which hadn't been thought of much before then. And he basically started to carve out for himself a whole lot more power and influence to make sure that his territories were expanded and that he was the most important person in the Frankish kingdom. Yeah, and he employed tactics that William the Conqueror used later on. He would look like he was surrendering and he would retreat. And then the opposition would come charging in, think they've got victory, and then he would turn around and take them out. It was also probably worth mentioning that the Merovingian kings who were title anyway, the kings of the Franks at this point, were a very strange bunch. I mean, there was quite a lot of confusion around how many of them there were. Nobody really knows. They had funny names like Dagobert and Childeric. And, you know, the last one that Charles proclaimed was Clothar. And these guys were, they were ineffective. They were kind of like heads of state rather than heads of government. They didn't actually do anything. They were symbolic and ceremonial kings more than anything else. The mayor was then effectively like a prime minister of today, let's say, in, if you had to compare to the royal family in England, Correct. you know, Queen Elizabeth would be like that, meaning the prime minister runs the show. Correct. Absolutely. So that's precisely what it was like. And he secured his rise in power through a series of victories from this point on. He punished the Saxons that you mentioned earlier. He also defeated them, ironically, in the Teutoburg Forest which was the place where Augustus's legions saw their demise against the same people. In fact, there were two battles that were quite interesting from the point of view that they seem to have been hotspots for battle. The Tudorburg Forest one, which I've mentioned, and later on, Poitiers, where King Edward III later defeated the French as well. So there are two interesting places there on the map, which were for two different battles at two very different times. Very interesting and seemingly kind of mysterious places. Yeah, and I suppose fundamental to the history of the world. Yeah, absolutely. But, the, you know, the distances covered by these guys in those days is quite something. I mean, he was fighting at one point in Bavaria. Then he's fighting in Burgundy. Then he's fighting in, you know, like the southern border of France, where Andorra would be now, uh, between France and Spain. So he really covered a lot of territory and managed to defeat many of these powerful warlords, including someone called Landfried, who was the Duke of Alemannia. Alemannia is what the French still call Germany, interestingly enough. And he eventually said to them, you guys have got to be subject to the Franks. 
something which obviously, you know, if you look at the long span of history, the French and the Germans have been at each other's throats pretty much ever since then. Yeah, they agree and then they go and they just change their <laughs> minds. I don't think he ever got that right with the Germans. But what he did do, he never lost a battle, but he needed to fund these battles like all the kings. If you, you know, mm. we talked about Edward III. I mean, he, he would have to plead for money to fight the yep. French. And in this case, yeah, in the 700s, he got the money from, you know, appropriating some of the classical lands. Or what do you call it? The, you know, yeah, the, the church, the, church, the church property. Lands. He just, he just confiscated yeah. church property. And then what he did is he gave them to, uh, knights of his, but they had to be ready to go to battle for him at any time. Mm. And they had to rally other men so that he could basically, this is, this is what I said at the beginning, the beginning of feudalism. He had these guys installed as his agents. And in order to make them powerful immediately, he just took church property away. And in those days, the church was very powerful. So you can only imagine how powerful Charles Martel was at this point to be able to do this in the face of an ascendant church. There was a good relationship between Charles and the church. He was very supportive and, and tried to help wherever he could with both the, the outgoing Pope and then the new Pope afterwards. Um, mm -hmm. so, so although he did, um, you know, pray, pray at the church lands, they still saw him as a very important part of it. And, and the church still remained the own, the actual owner. So it's almost okay. like a hundred year lease or whatever they might have called it in those right. years. Yeah. I mean, listen, if there's any story that's true for the whole of the Middle Ages, it's this very fine balance between the church, the nobility, and the peasants. And it's that little triangle that makes feudalism either, if you take a positive view of it, work, or ultimately led to its fall, if you, if you take the negative view. The big thing as well during this era, and you saw it in the late Roman era, was how do you control your population who have now got so many different, multi it's multicultural. So you have the Frisians, you've got the Caravindians, you've got the Germans, you've got all the Saxons. And the way that they saw to do it was through religion. Uh, so in other words, if they were Christian, it didn't matter where you, what language you spoke or where you came from, that was the way they could control their realm. Absolutely. So let's skip to the part which makes Charles Martel a famous figure in history. And that is a, a very big battle that he, he had in 731, uh, 732, somewhere around there. It was the Battle of Tours or Tours. And it took place in a part of France called Poitiers. This is the signal battle of his life. Um, this is where he essentially repelled the Saracens or the Moors or the, the Caliphate, as they were called, and repelled them back to within the borders of Spain. And essentially at this point, Christianity had won its first major victory. And you could kind of say from here on in, Christianity started to become the most powerful force in Europe and would continue to dominate Europe for, you know, thousands of years afterwards. Yeah, there were some comments like what I mentioned a bit earlier with regards to this major battle. A lot of right-wingers, you know, they said, well, look, I mean, if it wasn't for Charles Martel, Charles the Hammer, we'd be wearing turbans in London. You know, those type of comments came out. <laughs> and so... <laughs> But so yeah. it was seen massively divisive, but as people uncover more and more and you start understanding more of what happened, you know, they realized, like I mentioned earlier, was they wanted the gold close to Portier or actually in that area between Tours and Portier. There was apparently a lot of gold in a monastery there, and that's what they were after. It wasn't that massive battle between Muslim yeah. and Christian at the time. Absolutely. I mean, history tends to sometimes appropriate things that aren't really part of the story. And this wasn't 
to the to the Muslims anyway, it wasn't this big clash of civilizations, you know, the the big Christian versus Muslim battle. But for the people on Charles Martel's side, it was a huge propaganda victory. And it yeah. became something which kind of united the Frankish people and gave them something to be proud of. And from that point on, they thought that they'd be on the on the ascendant. And really the enemy, who was a guy called Abdul Rahman, he was a very smart guy, but he was killed in that battle. And only when he was killed did the rest of his soldiers decide, hell no, we're not going to carry on with this. We're out. But it carried on for a decade or more. You know, the skirmishes, you might call them skirmishes, you might call them battles. And then his son came in with a fleet of ships. And a lot of people think that this is the battle that you should have said defined it because he now was angry. His father was killed. He now brought fleet of ships and Charles went down and absolutely destroyed them. And so it lasted actually a quite a long time. The Battle of Poitiers was the starting point, yes. But there was quite a lot of battles, you know, consequently after that. Yeah, it's interesting that when he eventually did die in 741, he had a number of sons and he split the empire, the kingdom up between his sons, which was something that people did. You know, we tend to think of primogeniture, in other words, the eldest son inheriting, as being the normal state of affairs in Europe. Um, but this was long before that. Primogeniture was something that only came into the picture much later on. So what happened is a father would, when he died, split his possessions up between three or four sons, and they'd all end up poorer than he was, for example. And probably the strongest of his sons was Pippin the Younger, who ended up being the father of Charlemagne. But Charlemagne himself, when he died, the empire began to be broken up and, and mm. to obviously was an unstable and messy empire virtually straight after his lifetime. It's interesting how these guys never managed to really secure succession until a couple of hundred years later. Pepin actually was impressive. He's Charles Martel's dad. And then Charles Martel was incredible, not only from a military perspective, but also from an administrative angle. You know, he was well organized. He organized his realm. And then, yes, I suppose when you start dividing it up between sons, there's a weakness that comes out. And then the more powerful son take over. It happened with um, with Charlemagne, with his brothers. And then sooner or later, like you rightly said, it's going to actually disintegrate. So I suppose Charlemagne was the peak of the new Europe, as you know, the the way we see Europe. And then it unraveled after that. Yeah. I mean, recent historians have argued that his life and his battle was really overstated and quite dramatic by, you know, the, the historians of the time. But in context, it wasn't that big a deal. Um, a lot of people said that you know, historians today play down the significance of, of his life and his conquests in, in Europe because it was actually just kind of skirmishes and tribal warfare. And there wasn't really an organized system at the time. But I suppose the memory of Charles Martel is something which the French hold very dear. He's actually buried in Saint-Denis um, or was until the French Revolution. And... Um, you know, his tomb is one of those places that is venerated by the church. He's considered a holy and sacred figure of French history. And as you say, it's particularly among the right wing in France, which is uh, scarily on the ascendant at the moment, that Charles Martel's a hero. Yeah. So even in, in the United States, they've got a Charles Martel society or whatever it might be. You know, these are right wing guys. And Hitler had a bit of a foray with it as well, with Charlemagne, you know, with his Aryan race story, etc. But yeah. yeah, I think ultimately when you look at this 
and you look at the type of individual, I mean, he was a warrior, you know, he was a true warrior king, but with good administrative skills, he's obviously charismatic and he never lost a battle. And I think, you know, not often do they die in peace, which is what he did. Yeah, most leaders at this time were lucky if they could have even five and a half hours of peace during their lives, but he mm. managed to die in peace, which is also rare. There's just an interesting side fact here. He supposedly started the first order of knighthood in Europe. He was supposedly the guy who founded something called the Order of the Genet. Now, a genet, as we know, if you are a wildlife fan, and I know you are, a genet is kind of a small cat that um, you find, and apparently they were prized for their fur. And um, yeah. aristocrats used to line their garments with genet fur if they were really wealthy. So they would farm them and do this. And apparently he would distribute some of these genet furs to his most praiseworthy knights. They would then form part of this society, this order of the genet, which is reputedly the, the earliest order of knighthood. A lot of people say it's nonsense, but that may well be the first occasion of anything like that happening. Well, you can ask the question, are there any genets left in Europe? And then there's no. your answer. And <laughs> no, there's no, no genets there left. So no. Sounds correct. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I love the names, by the way. I mean, if you just look at some of the names that come out of this period in time, these are names that we would never, I don't think anyone has ever called their children these anymore. Lambert, Hesby, Ludwinus, Hiltrud, Carloman, Sigrand. There's also... Hieronymus, Dagobert, which is good, yeah, Remigius. I mean, there's some terrible, terrible names. So if if you had to be born at any time in history and you didn't want to have a shit name, this seems like the last place you should go. Yeah, and and just funny enough, and I did mention it before, very unfortunately, but it's nice to say it, is Clitterick was the... (laughs) Was, I think, the girlfriend or the wife of Charlemagne, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who's that in the garden? Oh, it's just Clitterick and Plectrude. <laughs> yeah, Plectrude. <laughs> All right, there's Charles Martel, the first proper ruler in what modern France would consider its very storied history. Blind History is brought to you by Taylor Blinds and Shutters. All the episodes are available on the cliffcentral.com website and app, as well as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. One other thing about Charles Martel is obviously there's a, there's a Martel brandy, which is named after him. And we spoke about Richelieu a while ago, and he's also got a brandy named after him. So the French history is being mined for brand names for this particularly, you know, um, popular kind of drink. Uh, 